Hey, welcome to Greenish. We're the sustainability podcast that talks about the ways we can individually and collectively help make the world a little more green. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Emily Stolorsic. She's a sustainability leader in corporate America, as well as an experienced NGO activist. Together, we're going to take a critical look at carbon impacts along supply chains and how consumers can educate themselves to make more environmentally conscious choices. Buckle up, because this is an exciting, jam-packed episode. Let's get started. Today, we have a guest, Emily Stolarsik. We are going to be speaking about her transition from an advocacy-based environmental nonprofit in Alaska to corporate sustainability for a Fortune 50 chemical company. Welcome, Emily. Hey, everybody. Good morning. Thanks for being here. I'm honored to be here. So excited (laughs) to chat with everyone today. Yeah, same. This is Bethany, and I've done a little bit of research about Emily and her background, and I'm super intrigued. Did you know in undergrad that you were going to wind up continuing in this direction? I didn't know anything in undergrad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I had an idea. I had a passion, um, but it was to wake that into reality. It's, It's a journey, winding path for many of us. So what was your undergrad in? Um, I graduated college in 2006 with an undergrad in political and environmental science. Okay. So I was thinking at that time that I was going to go into law school to be an environmental lawyer. Um, Then I met some environmental lawyers and I was decided, (laughs) no, maybe not immediately. So I took a very divergent journey and then I went back to school a decade later. So about for 10 years, I was pretty nomadic. I moved all over the world doing a lot of different things. I met my husband in wilderness medical school. So we were both wilderness first responders at one point. So we met um, and then we kind of decided to run away together. So yeah, a long journey. And then eventually that led me to Alaska. Did you move to Alaska for the job? No. uh, So my husband and I were living in Mexico, working on a horse farm and vineyard. We were volunteering at an orphanage, doing kind of the typical white savior thing, but I didn't know that it was called that at the time. And we, we rescued this puppy on Christmas Eve. And then the next day, my husband saw this old Volkswagen van again. A week later, he was like, guess what? I'm going to buy that van. We're going to move to Alaska. And I was like, you're crazy. Alaska's cold. Uh, But he convinced me. And then the people that we worked for in Mexico, they had retired down there from Alaska. And so they kind of started working on us like, hey, if you guys love the outdoors, you're hard workers, like you can really make a living. You can make a lot of money um, and have a lot of adventure in Alaska. And so my husband was sold immediately. So we ended up buying the Volkswagen van in Mexico, keeping the dog and driving 5,000 miles up to Alaska. That was in the winter spring of 2011 and my husband became a commercial fisherman for salmon up there and then I was I started working on the ambulance in in the town that we were in it's called Cordova Alaska south central coast and I also started bartending so I spent the summer slinging drinks to drunk fishermen and <laughs> being around when they needed to, needed to call 911. Um, and then after that, we did that for six months. After that, we moved to Thailand and we spent the winter working in a refugee camp, actually. Saw a lot of horrible things and learned that if you really want to make a change, you can't look away. We have a lot of privilege in the United States. I mean, none of us have ever lived through a civil war, um, but it was a growing learning experience. Uh, then we went back to Alaska and I decided, you know, the world 
needed more of me. So I started to work for, I actually used my degree for the first time in a few years and started working for this nonprofit. It's called the EAC, E-Y-A-K, Preservation Council. And they're still there doing really good work. Um, and it was a preservation based. So there's conservation and preservation. So this one was tribal based in origin. So EAC is actually the name of the tribe of people indigenous to that area of Alaska. And so we were doing tribal revitalization combined with habitat preservation. So this is really namely wild salmon habitat from oil and gas development. Uh, I mean, pick your threat, the environment there, climate change, and then the U.S. Navy, which was where I focused on a lot of my work after a couple of years. Yeah, there are so many rabbit holes we could go down. And I was thinking that the crux of your journey was going to be that you went from a preservation organization to corporate America. And instead, I'm like, you moved from Mexico to Alaska? <laughs> but Yeah, so I worked in Alaska for a long time. I had that job. And a few years into it, somebody came into my office and said, do you know what the U.S. Navy is doing out in the Gulf of Alaska? And I didn't. I had no idea. And so the Navy was actually coming to our town to give us a meeting and they're required by law. So there's something called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which requires when we talk about a public comment period um, or an environmental impact statement, all of those things are required by law under NEPA, so the National Environmental Policy Act, that when any sort of entity, whether it is uh, the military or a mining company, is going to embark on some activity that has the potential to permanently damage some environmental resource, they have to do an environmental impact statement. And the Navy had done one, and they were required by law to go to all of these different towns, mine being one of them, to not really explain what they were doing, but it was like a box check. And I went to this meeting. It was pouring rain. No one came. There were myself, my husband, my boss, <laughs> and like some guy that used to wander around town kind of drunk, four people. Um, and then there were all these Navy people. There were all these like shiny posters. And I was walking around kind of looking at everything. And then I realized like, you're bombing, you're dropping bombs in the critical habitat where our fish are, which fish, if you live in coastal Alaska, not only your source of income, so 90% of households in the community that I lived on were reliant solely on fishing to make their money, pay their bills. And we also ate it. So it was our food. Every coastal Alaskan, um, you get actually subsistence cards. So by law, you have fish, you can go get a certain amount of fish, and that's what you eat. <laughs> so it's like, oh my God, this is what you're doing. And so I started reading there, I think it's like 1100 pages environmental impact statement. And it was rough what they were doing. So they were actually doing live fire war games. And live fire means it's all real ammunition. So real bombs, real missiles, real sonar. And they use that the Navy does this actually all over the world. Unfortunately, there's not a single ocean that is not subject to this. So this is happening off the coast of Hawaii, it's happening off the East Coast. And then that's just our Navy. Don't even think about the other navies in the, you know, throughout the world. And they all use sonar, deafening to any ocean life, whales, fish. Uh, so a lot of issues with that. And so I realized that it was going to be a big issue. And I talked to the leadership in my organization and they were like, oh, Emily, <laughs> like you're going to take on the Navy. Uh, and I was like, well, how can we sit here and say that we're working for habitat preservation? Because usually the habitat preservation that we were focused on was like rivers and streams, so not oceans. So salmon spend half of their life in freshwater, half of their life in the ocean. 
And so I was like, well, if we're going to be holistic here, we have to look at all of it. So there was a couple of weeks where I just, every day I read that EIS, the environmental impact statement, and I wanted to crawl under my desk and cry because I didn't know how I was going to do this. I just knew I needed to do something. So I worked in that for, that was really like 2014 to 2017. And I did a lot of things there. There's still, if you Google my name and you go back, there's still some articles online about what I did. I ended up really tapping into something there uh, that I I still don't know where I got the strength and the energy and the or fierceness to do all the things that I did there because I stood toe to toe with like admirals from the Navy calling them liars <laughs> because they were, they were outright lying to what they were going to do. And um, I had a lot of surveillance at certain times, like my phones were tapped, my computer was hacked. Um, then the shift from here that caused me to really look into more of like, all right, where do, where do we go from here was, I ended up doing, and you can find these online, I was blogging for Greenpeace about what I was doing because I was planning um, different demonstrations. I was rallying the communities. I was working with tribal villages, commercial fishing organizations, a lot of very diverse stakeholders to bring them together to actually say like, okay, Navy, like we need to figure this out because what you're doing here is detrimental to our way of life. And if you're looking from a tribal perspective, the way of life for many thousands of years and what the Navy was doing is really irreversible. So I was becoming pretty, this this word is a word I don't like using right now, but radicalized uh, because I was like really immersed, really gaining a lot of traction and also very angry, frustrated, like, hey, like this, we will not stand for this. Um, and then... <laughs> Then Trump happened. So my work took a different turn after that. After Trump was elected, um, things got pretty dark. So in some of the work that I was doing, all of a sudden I started getting death threats. And I had never prior to 2000, like this was in 2017, early 2017. I had never had, I had never had anyone wish violence on me, but I had tons of death threats. And I didn't even know about some of them for a little while. And I, I contacted the Alaska state troopers, my local law enforcement. Um, I was very, working very closely with the time with our two federal senators. Um, but then I had death threats actually shared by the official like Alaskan Republican Party Facebook page. And wow. none of these enforcement agencies did. Yeah, none of them did anything to protect me. I mean, I was worried at some points, I was worried that I might be like assassinated in my bed in the middle of the night. So that's how intense some of it got. Like the Navy was sending people to my town to spy on me. Um, there were people coming into my office. I didn't know who they were. I didn't feel safe like going into my office anymore. So it was like, all right, I've got to do something else. Um, and so I had actually started graduate school the year before in January of 2016 because it was like, all right, I need to go do something. Um, and I don't know that the path for me is going to be like this um, more of like the Greenpeace always, always doing organizing marches and protests and demonstrations and fighting that hard with so little protection. Like the moment, the moment someone says they want to kill you and you don't know this person, they're a complete stranger um, and other people like it's a chorus. That was a turning point where I was like, you know, I don't know that this work is sustainable anymore. So yeah. I decided to do something else. And that was when I decided like, all right, <laughs> let's look at this company. So I had actually applied to the company that I work now for a graduate internship in sustainability. And uh, 
I didn't tell anyone and I just got on a plane and left. Um, I mean, my husband, of course, knew he stayed in Alaska to fish and I got on a plane and took that internship and I went to work for this chemical giant uh, where I work now doing sustainability. Wow. <laughs> so our large uh, multinational chemical company is going to run a thorough background check on you. And then they're going to see that you are oh, yeah. Yeah. totally more than a corporate sustainability, you know, grad student that you are working, you've worked with Greenpeace and that you're an activist and that you've butted heads with the Navy. I'm sure there's been plenty online that's, you know, politically driven that they probably normally avoid. And I'm curious, like when they hired you, was any of that like a hesitation or did they talk to you about your activism? No, um, to their credit, no, not, not initially. So at times, like it did, it did come up, um, I think, but no, it's like, I mean, their background check, like I've never been arrested or anything like that. So like, I mean, I have a clear background check. I mean, I'm sure that somewhere in the bowels of the Navy, there's a file on me and the work that I was doing, but that's really, that's kind of all past now. It's been a couple of years that since I've done that work, um, there was just a point where we had some really good achievements and success. And I said, okay, I have to take this. Like, this is my exit. I'm happy with where we're at. By the way, what happens from that? So through the work that I did, with the organization I worked for, we actually were successful in getting the Navy's amount of munitions that they can use cut by 50%. So instead of using, you know, 360 bombs in a summer, they can use now only half of that. Um, and really bringing awareness to that and rallying the yeah. communities and the tribes around it. So I was like, all right, like that's going to be good for me. Like I'm out. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to sit, sit here. Like I've got to do something different. So no. And the whole idea, I think with bringing sustainability into corporate organizations is that they know enough that they need a different sort of voice at the table and the program that I came in with, this MBA sustainability program, that was the goal to kind of hire this different talent profile or diversity of thought to bring that in. And that's one of the great points about sustainability. And that I've, I've talked about this many times in my job is that you need different voices at the table, because if you have the same people around the table talking about the same things, you're not going to have progress. Eventually, you're all just speaking this one language and echoing the same message back and forth and, yeah, not introducing new ideas and sustainability, like like science and technology and everything else that happens in a large company. It's innovation. It's moving forward. It's progress. It's we have to we have to innovate to stay ahead and to be successful in the long run. And you can fight it. But it's like if you want to exist and we want to have resources this is the best way to do it is to innovate and to get ahead, right? Or is is that kind of the thought or is it a little bit of much more resistant than that? Yeah, it is. Um, so I would say it's very challenging and that can lead us if we want to transition more into the topic uh, that I wanted to center on today is about trade-offs in sustainability. So before like sustainability was really like what we called it, um, I would say it was more like environmentalism or living in harmony. So with trying to shift from what we do today as a society, as consumers, as people, we have to do things differently. And that's where you're mentioning innovation, but it's pretty challenging. And so I have some examples that I wanted to go through. Um, and if you're, we can go into that or if you wanted to talk about other I things. Have 
I have more questions actually. And I know that this is, this mm -hmm. could go so much longer if I ask all of them, but I'm going to try to, on the um, environmental impact statement, you said it was like 1100 pages or 1100. Okay. Yeah. Was that written by, that was written and produced by what group that did the impact statement, a group of researchers um, so yes, there are researchers, but it's essentially commissioned by the U.S. Navy. So it would be whatever. Um, if it was a if it was a mine or if it was a road, it might be the DOT, the Department of Transportation. So whatever entity is responsible for the degradation, they are required to do an environmental assessment or an environmental impact statement. And they get to pick like their own people to do that to. They do, use, yeah. and they get to pick. They get to pick the information that's yeah. in there too. They get to get produced. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very sneaky. When you get into it, you have a lot of uh, what we call dueling science. So a lot of the research, if we're just talking about the Navy, is actually funded. A lot of the research is funded by the Navy, um, and their research statistics. There's always a bias, always. Um, so that's just something that you have to think about and the Navy, unfortunately, bottomless dollars, thanks to our tax dollars. So mm -hmm. they have a lot of money to sink into research. Yeah. If they're not getting the answers they want, they can go back from a different angle with a different research group. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> just a little light on that topic. bright note. Yeah. On that bright note. And I was going to say, uh, you use the word sustainability in terms of your work and your life. Obviously, it's not sustainable to get death threats and to be potentially assassinated for the work that you're doing or just living in fear is not sustainable. But obviously, like you were driven by rage, basically, and it was maybe righteous rage <laughs> at how this is happening and people are not either aware the proper information isn't being disseminated. There is an imbalance of power, especially in relation to the true stakeholders where the Navy doesn't live here. They don't, they're not indigenous to this place. There are people indigenous to this place. It's not a comparable investment in place, let alone of who gets to degrade it. But in, in that sense, being run and operated by rage, no matter how righteous is also not sustainable. Rage will drain you. Like you have to have, a system around you that of like support and obviously progress. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I decided. So the, I would, I, and I've said this before the, the wins when I really felt like, okay, like we just, we won here. Um, the right thing happened at the end of the day when I was working for, and I think a lot of people within who have worked with different NGOs will say this, the wins are hard fought and short lived. And I realized there was only one of me um, and life is, life is long, but life is also short. And when I looked at the impact that I wanted to have, like I was, I still very much believe and I'm connected to the work that I was doing in Alaska, but at the same time, like I was getting older, I didn't have benefits or vacation time or healthcare, all of those things too. And so it's like, all right, like I need to change something here. Um, there was also the funding structure. So I wrote all of my money like that I paid myself with came from grants or donations. That also was unsustainable because the whole um, kind of 
environment around how those organizations were funded was also changing. So it was harder to get the grant dollars. Um, I could I could hire a consultant and pay them more than I was paying myself to do the same work that I was doing, but I couldn't pay myself. So there are a lot of restrictions on the the funds that I was getting from different um, different grant groups, different funders, different organizations. And so I was like, okay, I want to do something different. And so I looked at, all right, I looked at government, right? Okay, Trump is in office. <laughs> That's kind of out. Uh, I worked in a nonprofit. I was doing academia. So I was in school. And I was like, all right, like follow the money because those are the people that are going to have the most amount of influence. And so that's what drove me to go get my MBA and to do something a little bit different um, and do sustainable business. And that's, a, I wanted to try a different platform from which to enact change. And I got it. That's what I'm doing now. And I think that the level of impact is potentially higher. Well, and I, the resources that you get doing that. I feel like when we obviously go into talking about LCAs and trade-offs and stuff, that's something you were able to like probably focus your energy on now and like learn these things and have resources to like learn them without being short-staffed or short-resourced like you would be in Alaska or doing something super intense. Like this way you have more capacity maybe? I definitely had more resources and it was more personally sustainable than what I was doing prior to joining the corporate world. And that's what a lot of like, you know, we will say, and I used to have a very black and white view on this, like very anti-corporate. Um, but now having done both, it's so gray and the interconnectedness and the reliance that all of us have. So if you look at like retirement funds, pensions, mutual funds, those are all invested in a lot of these corporations. So it's not as easy as just saying like, oh, the corporations are evil. And then everything we buy comes from a corporation. Um, and then just about everything is made with chemicals at some point. So chemicals seemed like a good place for me to go if I was talking about how do I maximize impact here the fastest way. And so that was how I went to uh, one of the main chemical manufacturers do you miss the the nitty-gritty struggle angry groundwork in alaska um no there's actually a lot of similarities like a lot of the work is the same like what am i doing i'm engaging with stakeholders i'm doing right. research right. having meetings doing phone calls sending emails um a lot of it is is the same but yeah i think i miss I miss some parts of it. Uh, I think somewhere in the prep work, there was like, what's your greatest struggle in the corporate environment? And it's definitely the playing politics. So I don't know if we talk about astrology here, but I'm a Virgo sun sign and a Sagittarius rising, which means I'm super practical and pragmatic and super frank <laughs> and honest. And so that sometimes isn't a I mean, I think it's great, but a lot of people, <laughs> I've, the feedback I've received is that maybe I'm just like, a bit much uh, for a corporate organization. Um, so that's like, it's, it's something to learn. It's an art form and I'm very much still learning how to, how to do that. I wouldn't say I've perfected it. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say to preface. Um, so I know Emily because we worked together at this company at one point and she probably doesn't realize this, but I, actually after working for this company, I had grown up in a really small town and environmental effects and all of these things like weren't really part of my upbringing or I had no like understanding of a lot of the effects of these you know companies and what's going on in the world in that way and 
Emily opened my eyes to a lot of it, kind of like how you said before that you kind of, you have to look at the ugly things also, not just look, kind of look away from those things. And I feel like from my experience in working in that environment, most people looked away from that side. And you were one of the only people who had influence on me who would show to look at the uglier side of things. And that's kind of what broadened my understanding of what's going on in the world. So influence on me to even be interested in these topics. Um, so I think your frankness and like your boldness and your fierceness with these topics are what has to be, that has to exist in the space for there to be any movement. Yes, thank you. And the way that you say things has to rally people to your cause. Um, and that's a thing that I really wasn't concerned about um, in my old work in Alaska. It was like, I'm going to say it, I'm going to say it loudest and the most times. <laughs> but now in the corporate world, like I have learned if you're not saying things, um, because I look different from a lot of the people, um, maybe not racially, but certainly by gender, by age, by belief system, I'm very different from a lot of the people that I have to bring to my cause um, within the corporate sphere. So if you are not effective in saying the things like you want to be able to state your case, but do it in a way that does not push people away. And I think that's so like, I'm so glad that it resonated with you. And the reasons it resonated with you are probably the same reasons that it didn't resonate with other audiences because you're young and you want to make a change and you want to have a mark in the world. You're hungry, like you're going for it. Whereas maybe other people who perhaps are older, uh, well-established in their careers, they're not so, like people were afraid of change sometimes. And to do the things that we're talking about with sustainability, a lot of change. Um, so you have to approach it in a way that brings people to you. I'm not an expert at that yet. Yeah, you have to time. walk the line of comfortable and uncomfortable. Because if people get too uncomfortable in that space, they shut you down. Yeah, they won't want to hear from me anymore. Yeah, mm -hmm. you have to walk the line so that they're willing to hear you. Yeah, you have to do it in a way that doesn't. Um, and I, I probably didn't always do this. I know that there was one meeting in Alaska where I really lost my cool <laughs> in front of the Navy. And there was an elected official there at the meeting. Um, she really didn't want anything to do with me after that because I got angry publicly and, you know, that's just not, it's not a good look, unfortunately can be sometimes, but it wasn't a good look for me to bring her. Like at that point, she didn't want to work with me anymore because I was too, I was too much fierce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was just, I mean, we were being lied to. Um, so even though I was right, I didn't help. I didn't help the cause at that point. Yeah, it is a very fine, fine line because you can't, if you, if you give them like, what I want to say, plausible deniability, the benefit of the doubt, it's like, they're going to stretch that. You kind of do have to call people out, but how do you do that in a way that doesn't create enemies and barriers to your cause? Yeah, I'm still struggling with that. <laughs> yeah, major struggle wherever. Yeah, I see the parallels between working in corporate and working uh, grassroots. In, in the corporate world, there are sustainability roles. And if we're taking this seriously, there should be a whole spectrum of roles kind of in, in every department that are in looking at innovation and looking at current practices, evaluating impacts, 
And then there's obviously the communications portion so that you are able to effectively communicate with the rest of the company and stakeholders and perhaps shareholders, consumers, all of this. But I often just see the role like sustainability leader. I would expect by now that we would have a whole array of of titles and specialties. But what would you say is the balance within your job or did you, what was the team like? So it depends. It depends on the company. It depends on the division, and it can it, it fluctuates. Uh, resources are obviously always an issue. I've learned no matter where you are. So I think sustainability. When I was working in a nonprofit, and this is similar of many nonprofits, you you do everything, and I like that. Uh, I've become in my life maybe a little bit overly self reliant. So it's like, all right, well, I'm going to do it because no one else is going to do it. So that's a good thing sometimes, but can also be a draining thing leading to burnout, like what what we've covered a little bit. So um, what I'm doing now, I work as part of a global team. So there's someone like me in every region around the globe and I lead North America. So there are other people that maybe lead the Asia Pacific region. And so we, we have a, a wonderful structure in place that allows us to work together That hasn't always been the case, though. Like when I started, I was the only person looking at sustainability in my business unit anywhere. And so it was uh, starting kind of from from scratch. And so being in a big organization, you have pockets of sustainability and it's about learning who those people are, how they can help you. But really, like you're forging in the beginning, I was very similar to what I had done at some points in the nonprofit world of like just kind of making your own way. And you have to, there are a lot of competing priorities. So you have to make it, I would say there's a big shift like from two years ago to now, two years ago, I had to push the conversation of sustainability an awful lot. That's totally reversed now where we are being constantly asked like, Hey, what's, what are we doing here regards to sustainability? And it's really quick, um, which is, is that from the, sorry to interrupt, is that from the public or is that from your peers or the company? Um, that you're being asked and kind of pushed? So while we're a publicly traded company, so there are a lot of different stakeholders, I would say where I've heard it the loudest in the last two years, the shift has really been more around customers. And I want to talk about that at some point today in like putting actionable things in the hands of everyone is what you, you can do as a consumer. So it's really customers because companies are listening to their customers I would say that in the, sometimes that can be driven by the regulatory environment. Hasn't been the case in the U.S. in the last four years. It probably will be. But there are different ways that that comes across. But what I've seen a lot is, is customers, and that trickles down to everyday consumers. So it goes back up the value chain. So we're probably on our way to this topically, but there is actual sustainable practices, and then there's the appearance of sustainability. And you can put the word everywhere and you can be like, this giant banner that we didn't really need is made of this recycled material. And, you know, like there's a lot of kind of ways to give a great impression. And then there's actual sustainability. And it goes both ways that sometimes something appears to be a facade and maybe it is or isn't. And then the same is true in small organizations and small companies creating little products that are totally unnecessary, or I'm trying to think of a good example, but basically it's, it appears sustainable. It's really not, but even a big company might have ways to create that appearance. And then conversely, there are things that really surprise you that 
what you don't expect to be more sustainable is. And so communicating all of these nuances effectively and in a way that people will believe you, whether it's internally or externally, I'm guessing that communication and education is a huge part of your work. And I know that you're going to educate us a little bit. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of hitting on a good topic. So the first part of what you said though, like does something appear to be sustainable or is it actually sustainable? I have a lot of material to talk about that today. Um, And so you're, I think talking a little bit about greenwashing where, and I'm going to mention that like where something is designed to appear maybe more sustainable or green or eco-friendly than it actually is. But I want to talk about like, how do we prove that it's actually better? So everything we do has has an impact, small, large, um, and the small ones add up to big ones. And so the impact of each decision is is something sustainable or is it unsustainable? Um, right now, I think we we talk about sustainable a lot, but we don't really know what that means. And so there's a phrase that I really dislike when I'm doing a sustainability, and it's oh we're going to do this because it's more sustainable. Well we should actually be saying less unsustainable because Mm. very few systems of how we live currently. So how we travel, how we heat and power our homes, our lives, very few of these systems are actually sustainable. Sustainability is a light switch. You are either on and you're sustainable or you're off and you're unsustainable. And so we, I don't think have quite realized how unsustainable a lot of our consumption patterns are in this modern world where right now we're talking through the internet, we all have heat going, we all have lights going, uh, we have all our cell phones. So I really dislike the word like, oh, we'll do this because it's more sustainable. It's really less unsustainable, but um, (laughs) I haven't been successful in getting that phrase to take off really. People don't want to use the word less unsustainable. It doesn't make sense unless you explain it. (laughs) No, no, it doesn't. Um, But anyway, it's a very iterative process and we're learning more all the time. And so I think that this is just what we do as humans. Like we try something, we learn, we figure it out and try again. So as we move from, you know, society as a society of consumers, how do we move away from the harmful impacts associated with what we're doing to ones that are better? And the better is the word I want to talk about a lot today. So what does better mean? There's a lot of different parts to that. And that's where the trade-off conversation comes in. So in what way is something better? And then how is it better? How do we measure that? Um, and then who is it better for? Because likely a decision isn't going to be better for everyone across the board. Mm-hmm. So typically, if you're talking about like, okay, what's going to be better is that you're focused around what is the main problem that you're trying to address. So you're typically like in the sustainable side, we're talking about minimizing some impact. Is that the impact of waste, right? We want less waste. Is it impacts associated with greenhouse gas emissions? Maybe it's um, energy consumption or the amount of water. So one of those is going to be more important than the other one. And in order to achieve one of whatever is most important is you're going to have to make a trade-off or a sacrifice on those other components. Like it's very rare to have something that's going to hit all of those things. And so I'll talk about that. And um, so we measure it how we measure this in the in the corporate world and it's not just corporations i mean anyone can do this is called a life cycle assessment or an lca so life cycle assessment and it's really how we answer that that what is better and what are all those impacts and that's the difference between i make an assumption that something is better because it's natural or plant based 
to actually, I have the data here that shows what is what is better and in which way is it better. Everybody still with me? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I call this carbon math and it's exhausting, but it's where you're always thinking about, is it better for me to go home and get the box that I already had? Or should I buy a new one if I'm shipping this? Or should I, what is those tiny decisions? And in reality, the fact that I'm shipping something across the country is probably the bigger issue. Yeah. Don't go home. Don't, don't go back. Don't drive unless you own an electric vehicle powered by solar power. That's the answer to that one. That's the other layer is the, is the, it depends what vehicle. It depends how close you live. It depends where you're going to bike back. Cause I could bike back. <laughs> okay. So with, with an LCA, we are able to measure the whole picture of a product or a service. So not just what we call the use phase, like when something is in my hand, I'm using it. We're looking at production. So everything upstream And then you can also look at downstream as well. So what happens for all of the products to come together into this device that I'm holding, say a cell phone. A lot of times when we're thinking like, oh, should I choose this or choose that at the store? That's like really far into the life cycle of the product because it's already on the shelf in front of you. What happened before it got there? And then what happens when you're done using it is really more of the things that we're looking at with an LCA to go back to that question of what is better? And LCA is, and so I'll just give this um, for the listeners, it's a pretty resource intensive activity. They take a lot of time and money. So when we say time and money, like an LCA can be as much as $100,000 and it can take six months because you're really looking at all of the data that goes into every single component of whatever. I know in grad school, we did the very first LCA I worked on was a toaster. (laughs) Like, which toaster is better than the other toaster and for which regions? And so, I mean, think of everything that goes into it. And that's, I geek out on that kind of stuff, but it can be a total information overload. So we use a lot of online databases and different software platforms. So there are a lot of them online. There are some that are free that you can just kind of play around with um, and then others that you have to pay for. There are a lot of consultants that do LCAs as well. So a lot of different ways to do an LCA out there. Typically, though, if you're going to share the information, so if I'm a product company, like if I make, I don't know, cereal or clothes or whatever, in order to really be accurate and avoid greenwashing, you have to be able to have your LCA results peer reviewed. So they're looking, it's not just my data and my take on the data, like that would be more of the, the EIS by the Navy. That's just like, oh, here's my data. And look, it's all good news. Um, really to do an LCA and have that published externally, it has to be reviewed by other people besides just yourself. Um, and they have to come up with concrete ways of like, okay, here is how this is better and better compared to what. So there's always a qualifier. So moving into greenwashing a little bit as consumers, we're constantly bombarded with greenwashing. So a company is trying to convince us that their product is worthy of our dollars because of some environmental attribute. But again, how do we know day to day that that is really what we're looking for? And so I think that it's good to talk about this. Like I don't expect everybody to just go do an LCA, but some of the things I'm gonna talk about are really things that I did not know before I started my current job. And I would like to translate this to give consumers more awareness about how their decisions impact whether their life is more or less uh, sustainable. So I think that uh, one of the things that I see a lot in consumer marketing is this, a product is marketed as 
natural or having a certain amount of maybe recycled materials in it. So this is a great opportunity to like to talk about what natural means and is a product better just because it is quote natural and what is what does that mean? So is it natural meaning bio-based, like coming from a biological origin, or does it contain recycled content? And then how do we think about that? So it's a lot of factors that go into deciding how something is better. If something is marketed as having natural content, then whatever those natural substances are, they're replacing the unnatural substance with one that they're deeming natural. And so what is unnatural? And and this is just like, well, we think we know what is natural, unnatural. A lot of times unnatural would be like, okay, this is synthetic or maybe of chemical origin and chemicals would actually come from a petroleum or a petrochemical source, which is actually natural, comes from the ground, right? We just then do a lot of things to it. So what's, what is involved if we're saying go from unnatural to natural? And then is that actually better? So This is where I'm going to complicate things really a lot because what we're going to find out is actually that natural may not be better or better in which way. So I think that the fossil fuels is a great one to talk about because obviously we want to divest. We want to get off of gas and oil. We have to for our continued survival. But how do we actually do that? It's not a clear path forward yet. The assumption is we want to live the same lifestyle we live today with all of these wonderful things, gadgets and products and ways of life. We don't want any of that to change, but we want it to be more sustainable. And we want more people to have this quality of life, yeah. right? We, that's also part of it. Is we want <laughs> everyone to have access to resources that we're already over-consuming. We want everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Trade-offs. Trade-offs. Okay. So let's talk about trade-offs with oil and gas, um, because I think a lot of us are we don't even realize that it's a trade-off, but it is. So oil and gas and the products that come from them are great products and great sources. And I can't even believe that I'm saying that because the me from a few years ago would have never said that. Now, having been, you know, seen more, I can say that like gas and oil are wonderful. Like plastics are wonderful, but there's a trade-off with those. And so that's really when it's when we talk about the trade-offs that things go downhill. So Yes, in order to like get all of these products that we love that come from gas and oil, we're talking about oil spills, environmental degradation, habitat destruction, biodiversity loss. We're talking about the accumulation of <laughs> millions of tons of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere leading to climate change. So the trade-offs associated with using gas and oil are very heavy, heavy to the point that they threaten our very existence as a species. So, wow, yeah, a lot of trade-offs with using gas and oil. So... Okay, but I want to replace gas and oil, and I want to replace it with something that's better, something that's natural. So natural, if we're saying, or this conversation would say natural is coming from a bio-derived or bio-based source, which is typically coming from a field or a forest or the ocean. And just like we don't want to destroy all of the forests with drill pads and oil wells, we also don't want to cut down all the forest to plant farm fields. Right. So that's like one big trade-off is, so what are you sacrificing to source your unnatural versus natural? Right. Does it matter? Like, this is this very philosophical question of like, if a tree falls, no one hear it, did it make a noise? So if the forest is cut down or oil development, or planting soy fields, the forest is still cut down. So that's like this major trade-off that you can't get away from. No matter what you do, 
unless you're just not going to have those products, which I think is we've already kind of discovered is not an option. People aren't going to use less. Like how, how can we in this developed society tell, you know, the rising couple of billion of people around the world, the rising middle class that, no, you shouldn't have the things that I have. Mm-hmm. When I was in grad school, we were told that if you're trying to propose a solution, you can never tell people to use less and you can never say more education because it's not a real solution. Like, yes, you can educate people. Yes, you can use less. But by far and away, like if you look at the way that our planet uh, is being developed by people every year, we have more buildings, more people, fewer natural places, like the using less thing. It's not a real, it's not a real yeah. solution, especially in a time like coronavirus, something like coronavirus happens. And now we're like, oh, <laughs> well, using less goes right out the window because I need to be safe. Right. I think palm oil is a good example of this too, right? So palm oil has replaced some other ingredients. So maybe some petroleum is being replaced with palm oil. But again, we've seen the habitat for the orangutans and many other species yeah. absolutely decimated in the pursuit of palm oil. We know that, yes, like, yeah, we can say it's responsibly sourced and like, oh, my, you know, my product from the shelf at Whole Foods has palm oil in it. And they're saying it's okay palm oil. Again, okay for who and okay in which ways. And those are the ones that as consumers, we really don't know. And so unpacking some of this is like the questions you have to ask. And unfortunately, I'm just going to make more confusion (laughs) and make those decisions harder. Um, Okay, so the next trade-off is like, if you're moving from say oil and gas to bio drive source, how is that then produced? So we may not be drilling for oil, but say if we're growing uh, growing a crop, then you're looking at farming. Farming in itself, the way that we do it today is a very resource intense activity. We have the use of fertilizers, pesticides, more water required and huge machines that degrade the soil. So sometimes the cumulative impact of the pesticides, the water use, the farming equipment makes the footprint of that bio-derived source actually worse than oil and gas. And so that is where like this, this conversation of trade-offs is what am I trying to solve and what is most important? Because if I'm trying to solve climate change, we don't yet make like electric tractors and harvesting equipment to go, you know, we've, we've cut down the forest either way. We're going to plant the trees or, or, or we're going to plant a crop or we're going to drill for oil. Sometimes drilling for oil actually has a lighter footprint. So then then what do we do? Yeah, this is hard stuff. And this is why it's not easy to do sustainability, um, because these are the questions you're trying to answer. Um, and that's why we use it LCA of like what is better. And so typically something might be better in the way of carbon footprint, but it might have worse impact when it comes to it needs more water or it creates more waste. So there's a lot of like we see potato plastics, corn, like derivatives, ethanol and fuel. And so just if you look at so corn actually has a much higher eutrophic potential than anything else. Um, so eutrophic potential is all of the fertilizers, all of the stuff that we put to, on the fields to grow the corn. When it rains, it washes into the river. Those things can cause harmful algal blooms, which then deplete the oxygen, which shit, now we have a dead zone in the middle of Gulf of Mexico mm-hmm. from the Mississippi River. So the Gulf of Mexico, yeah. we have a huge area, literally dead of ocean because there's no oxygen in the water. So how do you feel as a consumer now? Like, do you want to go out and buy something that was made out of corn? You have to pick your poison and then you have to think like, okay, I can't solve every problem 
but I'm going to pick the most important one. For me, that typically comes down to climate change or associated like greenhouse gas impacts. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, that's the most important one because if we don't get that one under control, we're all going to die. (laughs) For for someone who's uh, not as smart, would you like break it down for like short and long term? Like, yes, in the short term, this may look cool or be not as less sustainable. Um, Or do you go like long term and say like, yes, this will last forever. Maybe this won't degrade or. I think like as modern humans, we don't really know short or long term because that's true. What we're doing right now, like short term, what like short term, like a year, short term, like a lifetime. I mean, that's a great trade off. Like, hey, this might be worse now, but is it better in the long run? Yeah. So another yet another trade off around like unnatural versus natural is sometimes can be the the social impacts. So usually when we're talking about sustainability, most of the time, unless expressly said or announced, we're talking about environmental impacts. Obviously, they have a lot of social. So when I was working in Alaska was really where I started to learn about like the, the impact that this, if you sacrifice the habitat and the way of life, then you're actually having a huge negative impact on the people as well. So if you're talking about native cultures, for example. So we've got environmental side, emissions, uh, water, waste, energy. Sometimes the social impacts can be very hidden. I think there's been some awareness brought to some of these, but I'm just going to unpack it a little bit more. If we're moving from natural or we want to move to natural from unnatural, Sometimes the crops that we want to use only grow well in a certain area of the world. And then sometimes that area of the world may not have a lot of the things that you and I take for granted living in this country. Um, I think a good example is the cocoa industry in Africa and how you have uh, really rampant issues of child labor, um, forced labor, and a lot of human rights violations in the pursuit of these natural products. And it's really hard for us as consumers to figure out how to go all the way back in the supply chain. It's even difficult for companies like I work with now because some of the times this stuff is so hidden, it's coming from a different part of the world and it's the only option. So if you're wanting to substitute an unnatural source for a, a, a natural source, what if someone said to you like, okay, well, this product isn't made with gas and oil, but it is made with child labor. How do you feel about that as a consumer? How do you this feel about that? This, this isn't like a real <laughs> thing, by the way. I this is just like a... <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a whole new question. Then yeah. they're like, oh, well, are people going to know that that's the case? Or, I mean, yeah. this is the only option, so we're just going to turn a blind eye because it's better for this other scenario. <sighs> Sometimes this stuff can be so... It's It's not that it's like the cheapest. Like, this is just a way of life for some people. Like, they have their children work in the field. And that's what they've done for thousands of years. Yeah. So then you can like go further with this is like, well, is it up for me to say that, and this is, this is going to sound really bad, but it's like, well, is child labor wrong if they've been doing it for thousands of years? Like we think, yes, immediately that is wrong. That should not be happening. So yet another thing to consider on the trade-offs is like better in which ways and better for whom are things that we're constantly trying to figure out because maybe it's, Maybe it's not made with child labor or forced labor, but now they instead they have machines that maybe they have to go into debt over, maybe that they leak oil in the fields, like all of these things that make it really difficult. The next thing I want to talk about, the next trade-off is around sourcing. 
So we drill for gas and oil all over the world. We also grow things in most places of the world. But sourcing, if you're talking about products that we use every day, you need an immense amount of. Think of the Great Plains of the United States. But how do you grow crops in those places and then get them to where you need? There's also an associated carbon footprint with the not only the growing, but then the transport of those materials. So how is it transported? And then which way is it moved? Is it put on a barge or is it flown in a plane? Is it put on a truck that's electric or is it a truck that's run on fossil fuels? So these are all then adding to that, like what is better if you're looking at a cumulative footprint. And then if you're thinking about a big company, what if there is like, so you have a crop that grows only in one part of the world. What if there's a typhoon? So flooding, what if there is a drought and then the crop you don't have? So with these sorts of variabilities, it's very difficult to invest and have it be as a sure thing of gas and oil. That's why it's hard to get off of gas and oil because the trade-offs are really hard. They're, they're maybe impossible. So how can I get enough of this? Is it pure? Is it coming from the places of the world that I need? Are we cutting down the rainforest either way? Um, so those are, these are difficult things. The last one is the cost. And if you're talking about a corporate world, cost is usually going to be a bit higher. I put it kind of last, last on my list, but it is important because when we talk about sustainability, we want to make sure that it hits the, you have to make a profit if you're going to stay in business and pay us to do this work. It has to be good for the planet and good for the environment. This is that triple bottom line, people, planet, profit. So getting a product that is perfect is very, very challenging. So say you have this natural alternative thing and it's got no negative social impacts. It was produced in a way that didn't harm the environment or harm people very much, but it costs three times as much. So then is it affordable for you, the general consumer? So I would say like looking at a lot of the cost impacts, imagine everything that you buy, if you want it to be more sustainable, cost three times as much as it costs today. How would that impact your life? So electricity is three times expensive. A car is three times Every single thing around you costs triple what it costs today. We would consume less. You would, but there would be some suffering around, like we would, but what about people who like just can't afford that? A normal person would struggle too. You know, the average person who's maybe middle-class would struggle with that change. There's people who can barely afford anything now. So Mm -hmm. there's just too much of a gap. This might even be pre-pandemic. 40% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So we're not paid enough. Like if, if you look at the wide scale, we are not paid enough money to afford things that cost three times as much. So everything would have to change. The whole dynamic would have to change. Minimum wage would have to change. And then we wouldn't all have individual homes as much. So like our lifestyles would have to change. It's big. I'm what I'm pointing out is not like, let's just do it. Although I'm down, but also and the quality, I feel like the quality of the products would also have to decrease, even if everything was three times. Yeah. Yeah. So Everybody wants a product that doesn't cost any more than it currently costs. And the performance is the same. So like we have this assumption that has been brainwashed into us through greenwashing. We have this assumption that natural is better, right? It's better for the environment. But what if it doesn't do what you need it to do? Um, And that could be a difference of life and death sometimes. Like what if it's a piece of medical equipment that doesn't perform as well? So there's a lot of factors that go into the buying decision 
that aren't just contingent on the sustainability story or the environmental benefits or attributes of a product. Because if it doesn't work, I'm not going to buy it. And that's also, you could talk a lot about recycling challenges with that as well. Did you guys all have coffee this morning? Yeah, right here. Okay. I drink tea. I don't drink coffee. Okay. Well, tea is lesser uh, of an impact, but I I think coffee is one because it's so common in our day-to-day. Over a billion people every day consume coffee. So they make the decision every morning that I'm going to have coffee. And a lot of us don't even think of it as a decision. It's just our ritual or it's part of our day. Like certainly it's going to be less of an impact if you don't drink any coffee or you don't drink tea and you only ever just drink water. But we're not that simple. We're complicated creatures that want a lot of comforts of modern society. And that includes coffee. So one of my mentors love this example. And I think it's a really great way to bring this awareness about an LCA into the day-to-day lifestyle of maybe the people listening or even just you all if you want to pass this along. So think of everything that goes into having the coffee, just getting the coffee to you. So the coffee beans are grown somewhere. They're then processed, they're packaged, and then they're shipped to wherever you buy it. And then you get the coffee home and you're going to add water and power to then prepare the coffee. And then you're going to consume it with a cup, generally, either disposable or reusable. So where did all of that come from? Do you ever think about like just, all right, you've already got the coffee, but did you think about where the water comes from that you're going to use in the coffee? Where does the power come from? So when you're doing an LCA, you would measure all of these things to go into like, should I have coffee from here or coffee from here? Or should I have coffee or tea? Like these are all kind of the the boundaries you would set in the beginning before you do your LCA deciding like what exactly you're comparing. So you can see like what parts of the consuming of that coffee actually have the most impact. And we know this, (laughs) we know this is true because people have done, there are a lot of nerds like sustainability LCA nerds out there who wanted to know this. So they actually did LCAs on this to figure out what part of this whole chain of events has the most amount of impact. So I wanted to ask you guys, if you're looking at everything, where do you think has the most impact? My guess after you explained it is transport, like transporting the coffee to where you're at, like from wherever it is in the world to where you're at. Other guesses? The cup? The harvesting of the beans. Okay, so three different guesses, harvesting, transport, and the cup. Um, So Bethany's right, actually. It is the cup, and then within the cup, so the most impact actually comes from washing your reusable cup. Of all of the things that went into getting that coffee, the most environmental impact with that whole process is going to be from washing your reusable cup. That makes me sad. Yeah, I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) If you're choosing a reusable cup, that means you're not choosing a disposable cup. So if you choose a disposable cup, there is no washing. So you eliminate that whole step because you throw it in landfill, it's going to be incinerated. Because you're eliminating a whole step with a disposable cup, so now when you wash it, it it just kind of pushes up the impact of this reusable cup. However, there's trade-offs. And this is like the wonderful thing about this is that okay, you're maybe saving the energy of washing that cup, but then what about the source? Maybe it's polystyrene, a foam cup, so it came from a petrochemical source that was drilled and processed a million times and shipped to your door, or it was a paper cup, that then there was trees and bleach and all the things associated with paper production, and then you're putting into the landfill and you don't know from there. So there's this trade-off of, do I want a lower footprint and more waste, or do I want a higher footprint, less waste? 
And that is the trade-off that can change depending on where you are. So there's never a one-size-fits-all solution. All of these decisions impact the environmental burden of you having that cup of coffee just by what, what kind of cup. So here's another uh, trivia question. How many times do you have to use that reusable cup to essentially be equal with the disposable cup? Any guesses? I feel like it's something like your whole lifetime or something. <laughs> like your oh, whole. No, not that much. <laughs> okay, like, okay, maybe like, like I'll guess. Three years. I'll guess, but you have to use it five thousand times. I feel like like three years. Like three years is a good duration of time. Ah, uh, okay. So um, it's lower than a thousand. Um, it's actually, if you're in Michigan, from the most uh, up to date data that I've seen. Um, about a hundred times is how many times you have to use that cup, okay. that reusable cup. It would kind of put you even to using that a disposable cup. So you could use, That's and if great. you flip that around, 100 disposable cups equals the impact of one reusable one. That's crazy. One. It is crazy. So that's in Michigan. Um, the numbers are a little bit different in California. So if you're in California, it's about 70 times, and that has more to do with how they source their power in California versus Michigan. Okay. I would have thought it's about water and that water scares California would have been more times you'd have to Me use too. it, but it's energy. Okay. To wrap up coffee, like what is the most responsible, best, better way to have coffee, assuming you're making the decision to have it? So I would say don't waste any of it. Don't make any more than you're going to consume. And then obviously compost your coffee grounds. <laughs> so so many resources went into it. So yeah. don't waste it. And then you want a reusable cup and you want to reuse your cup a lot, many, many times. And uh, or don't don't wash it, you know, or use it, yeah. use it a bunch of times before you wash it. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. My like dirty self is like super happy because I did not wash my coffee cup this morning. I have laziness because I was like, well, I just drank it yesterday. So I'm just going to pour more in. Yeah, fine. Look at you. Look at you saving the world. <laughs> but I'm glad that it's better for the planet. <laughs> It is better for the planet. When I take my cup to a coffee shop and I'm like, it just had coffee in it, is what I say. And they're like, it's cool. Like, we're your people. Well, so the last point of that, of the most responsible way to enjoy coffee is don't drive out of your way to get it. Because mm -hmm. the impact of you getting in your car to drive to go get coffee is way higher than the coffee itself. And turn your engine off if the line is long. Like, we don't all have to have our cars running the whole time we're waiting in line for anything. If you're looking about your, just your level of impact, you have more of an impact on the environment if you do all the things that we talked about with reusing a cup, not reheating the coffee multiple times, not wasting any. That's where you have the ability to like really lessen your impact, which is at the end of the day, the only thing that we can really control is our impact. All of the stuff that we're talking about is very difficult to translate to your average consumer. Yes. Yet, if you sit here and listen to this podcast, you're probably leaving with like, oh my gosh, now every time I'm going to make a decision, I'm thinking about where did it come from? How did it get here? What's it powered by? So, and that's some of the things that we should be thinking about every day when we make decisions. Well, and marketers are going to grab whatever their one token selling point is. If it's, this was not made with child labor, they're going to highlight that versus the environmental stat that the other company who's doing something more sustainable environmentally, but might have child labor in their, in their sourcing line is going to highlight the environmental sustainability aspect. 
So even on the packaging, we have to recognize that we can ask all the right questions, but we're not going to get all the answers most likely. And maybe it also comes down to not enough room on the packages and not enough caring. Like if consumers don't care, it's not going to wind up on the packaging. The EPA is not going to require it. Right. And if we show that we do care, then that's where I feel like we vote with our dollar to show what we do care about and the companies have to. And we've seen this, I think that we've seen the companies respond to what customers care about or don't care about all the time. But I think that having this awareness that we talked about, like all of these different things going on and like, what choice am I making? Is it the best choice? All that stuff. Instead of thinking about it in an overwhelming way, it's just more like, okay, I have it in the back of my mind now. So I'm hoping to always make a slightly more conscious decision. It's empowering. Yeah. Like that's what I would hope people leave with is that they are empowered to make these decisions. And it's a way of thinking that just to bring that awareness into your day to day. And I think that that is a great first step. You can't look away from these things. So once you're hip or aware, like you will start making better decisions, but it can be a slow process and that's okay. Um, Sustainability is a journey. We are on it together, whether it may feel like that or not, like all segments of society, we're in this together. I think from looking at my journey from nonprofit into corporate, I can say that there is this extreme level of intention being paid to all of these things because I do think we all want the same things. We want to do things in a way that ensures our continued survival. We want to live with all the modern conference. We don't want people to suffer. We don't want to see widespread environmental degradation. But how do you solve all these problems is very difficult. And that's where the discussion of trade-offs comes in. Because anytime in the corporate sphere that we're making a decision, we're going to look at the data and pick like, okay, at the end of the day, with all of these things factored in, what do we do? And that's the same decision that we make as consumers. So we're not actually that different. Um, It's just the level. With all the information somebody might be gleaning right now as we're talking about surprising answers to these questions of what's more sustainable, somebody might actually feel less empowered to make the right decision or more confused. And that is where we've talked about climate anxiety early on in this podcast, where if you, it's actually people who have more information who wind up perhaps doing less at times and being less engaged because it's a state of perhaps paralysis. And We can take these LCAs and summarize them according to all the different impacts, but is there one score that takes all the overall impacts and kind of like the Weight Watchers for food? Is it like the the score for the point system for carbon impact? And you know, if you're comparing two different products that you know you're comparing apples to apples, that one is a three and one's a six. Do you think that's in the future? I do. And there are some pockets where that actually already exists. So there, I know that there's a couple of apps. Um, I don't know if it's available in the United States, but there are a couple of apps where you can do the barcode scan and you can actually get a product carbon footprint. So a product carbon footprint doesn't take into account all of the factors that an LCA does, but the carbon footprint generally is just related to what are the associated greenhouse gas emissions with the production of this product versus another product. So I do think there will be a way that that information will be put into the hands of consumers and it is already technologically possible. That's where I believe in being a very active consumer. And so yes, vote with your dollar, but also communicate to the companies and say, as a consumer of your products, 
it is important to me that this information be available so I can make an informed decision. So that alone will be a very good thing. It will move the needle a lot because if companies say like all of a sudden all this information is transparent, they're like, wow, my product actually doesn't have as good of carbon footprint as this other product. And I think as a result, I will, it will cause me to lose market share or lose business. Um, Then it will push those companies much more so than they would have, you know, it was just voluntary. Once we do that, we'll only get better. I think we're continually rising to this higher level of consuming consciousness. Yes, I I think you'll see it. So I wouldn't stress out about it too much. But I think we are moving in that direction. Yeah, it's I mean, it's going to be complicated regardless. I get that. But I think that's where like being pragmatic about what we can do right now and being hopeful for the future that all of this is getting better. We're getting more information. We're getting smarter. When you left Alaska and you know, you had your like, whether it was a win or a half win, because they're going to use half the amount of explosives in the ocean. Oh, it's painful to even say that. But do you feel like, you know, you're about to move on from corporate America, which we haven't really talked about, but as you're stepping away from this role right now, are you, I don't actually know if you're stepping away fully from corporate or business or where you're going, but would you say that you feel like you have a win or a half win or a you know, what was your, what were your biggest milestones or wins in this role? Ooh, well, that's a good question. Um, so far, cause it's, yeah, I don't think I'm over. Uh, I don't think I'm done with corporate America yet or that it's done with me. I think I have dreams of achievements or hopes in this arena that I haven't yet achieved. So a lot of the work that I did the early stages was increasing some of the literacy around sustainability. Mm-hmm. So I would ask a lot of people like, okay, what's the synonym for sustainability? And people would say like recycling, <laughs> uh, which it's not. <laughs> so the beginning to just really talk about what we've had here, like bring more awareness into the day to day to just really think about these things. I think that's, that's enough because the change takes a long time, but you can't change anything until you have this, this change of mindset and a new level of awareness. So until you have that, until you recognize that you can't just look away and ignore things, mm-hmm. nothing is going to happen if you just ignore things or continue to look away. So I think what a lot of my intention and energy has been put on is getting people to actually think about those things. And I do believe that I've been successful. And it's not easy. It's not easy to change the way people think. No. It's really hard. And that's what I say I love, like one of the decisions to move from environmental NGO into this corporate sphere was about how can I bring my experiences in and then have this higher level of influence? Because that's, I think, what a lot of us want to do, right? We want to make, we want to save the world. We want to make the world a better place. There are a million different ways how you can achieve that or how you can accomplish doing that. Yeah, it's a battle of inches and there's nothing harder to change than a mind. (laughs) I feel like, yeah. So it's good. You have to celebrate those small wins. I'm glad. I mean, we need you in corporate America, I think. It makes me feel better knowing you're in there. So yeah, you passed our background check, which didn't include the <laughs> FBI, but but we feel good about taking uh, your word that you know a lot more about both sides of this coin, I would say. And so yeah, I think thank you for being a very valuable source of information. I was honored. I mean, when I came into the corporate world, I had a very black and white view, very radical, maybe more extreme. And what I've learned 
in the years since I've stepped away from the nonprofit work is that it's really gray. It's very shades of gray. And that's where I love this conversation around trade-offs because there is no black and white solution. And so if we want to move like less sustainable to more sustainable, how, in what ways? And I find that endlessly fascinating because there isn't just one answer. So that's really what I love and what drives me to, even though working in sustainability is hard, is frustrating, overwhelming. I think it's this curiosity of like, well, how do we do this better? What does better mean? Better for who? Better in what way? There's so much work to be done there. Um, and there's room for everybody. So if people are thinking about sustainability, like go for it, find your cause, find what's important to you and figure out a way to bring that into uh, your day-to-day reality. Yeah. I feel like it also, it scratches that itch that humans have to always improve. You know, like I feel that in my personal life a lot and sustainability is like a great career outlet for that. Like you are always wanting to think about what can be done better and how many different ways it could be done. I love, I feel like it makes it sound so attractive and so exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. (laughs) We need that encouragement sometimes. Sustainability professionals can get, uh, we can get a bit cynical. (laughs) Understandably. Yeah. So fair. I don't love the fact that it's super complicated, but I, I like the recognition that it intersects with all these other issues, which we know that, but what I think somebody who's thinking about a career path should also consider is that if you're interested at all in sustainability, knowing that you can take your interests and your passion and your skills that don't look like sustainability on the outside and and find that intersection. And hopefully, as you can't clone yourself and other sustainability leaders can't clone themselves in a corporate setting or in any setting, but that sustainability becomes part of the training in every job so that it doesn't always take a specialist oversight, but that it's in the forefront of everyone's minds. Yeah, we talk, we talk about that because it's like, oh, well, eventually we'll be successful when sustainability is no longer like an industry because it's just, it's just the norm. I think we're probably 30 years away from that. If every company that says they want to be carbon neutral by 2050, if they can achieve that, there's a lot of work in that arena. I think if you ask anyone in any job anywhere, you know, do you want to have some part of your job that's related to making the world a better place? Like everybody would say yes. So that's, that's really something everyone wants. In a lot of jobs, you can find a way to incorporate some aspect of that, even if it's not your title or your job description. There are ways in which to do that. And even just the simple things, like if you're a truck driver and you decide to shut your truck off more often, mm-hmm. like that's that's more sustainable. It's making a difference. Um, so it's those small things, that small shift that we're talking about. And I think that that's like right now, just do the best you can. Yeah. Thank you. On that note. Thank you. Don't be discouraged, anybody. <laughs> just do the best <laughs> no, you can. Be and don't beat yourself up because that is going to prohibit effort. You know, we're going to be exhausted. You cannot be fueled only by frustration. We have to be fueled by hope and progress and celebrating small wins individually and collectively. So thank you so much for being here and for sharing all of this. You're most welcome. Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much, Emily. I I think we learned a lot about what it takes to tackle sustainability on a larger scale. We'll have to have you back to talk about your next thing. And also (laughs) we could go into carbon credits, which I'm actually excited to to talk about that topic soon. So 
carbon credits, recycling, there are no shortage of issues uh, to talk about, even to have the trade-off conversation around. Okay, we'll see you soon. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, it was great. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, take care. And thanks for listening to Greenish. Have a great rest of your day. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate you. There was a ton of really great information in this episode, and I hope everyone feels encouraged because the more that we talk about it, the more that we educate ourselves, the better equipped we are to apply pressure and affect change. If you want to leave us a review, that would be awesome. Greenish is a podcast produced by Be Alive Studios, edited by Caitlin Lovell, produced by Bethany Scully, Cecily Krieger, Elin Stribling, and Caitlin Lovell, with original music by Devin Anderson. You can follow us on socials at greenish.podcast, or you can leave us an email at greenish at gobealive.com. 